0: Hi everyone, Asad here from Invisible Hate. We hope everyone is enjoying their holiday season. It's been a busy one for both Sadia and for me, mostly because I've been traveling a lot and because Sadia is sick. Thankfully, it's just a cold and we hope that she gets better soon. So today, we don't have a new episode of Invisible Hate for you. Instead, we're going to play you a recent episode from Sadia's other podcast called Immigrantly. This episode is called The Quiet Violence of Language and explores language's power and potential harm. It's really a fascinating episode that challenges all of us to be more conscious about the words that we use on a day-to-day basis because words are more complex than they seem. Enjoy
1: Welcome to Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan. Listeners, today I want to have a very honest, unadulterated, uncomfortable conversation with all of you. And I know we do that all the time here in this space. But today I'm going to share my emotions, my thoughts, what I'm feeling, how miserable I've been with all of you because you are my family. And I hope you understand where I'm coming from. For the last one month, I've been feeling more anxious than usual. I am mentally and physically exhausted. I have apologized a million times for the crimes of others. I know Muslims are once again being targeted, dehumanized, called terrorists Muslims are losing jobs, being surveilled more than usual. And it's just incredibly frustrating to see that time and again, we are made to feel that we don't belong. The events unfolding in Gaza have had a huge impact on Muslim communities across the globe, but especially in the U.S., I was not even in the U.S. for Thanksgiving. I was in fact in London because I did not want to celebrate Thanksgiving this year. Didn't feel like it. So yeah, if I am being brutally honest, I am sad, I am frightened, I am angry. And because of that, I am going to talk about something that will help us put things in perspective.
0: What they say to me is I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. You know there is a fair number of Hamas terrorists. There is no justification for terrorism. Israel has a right to defend itself. If we're not in Israel, we'd have to invent one.
1: Today, I don't have a guest to interview here with me. Instead, I wanted to speak with all of you my listeners one-on-one about a topic that's been on my mind recently, and that's the power of language. Now, those of you who've been listening to me for a while know what my mission is with Immigrant I say it at the beginning of every episode, nuanced storytelling. Now it's definitely not the first time I've thought about this particular topic, but in light of the concerning events in Palestine, I thought this topic has become very timely. Over the past month, we've all seen the influx of headlines, social media posts and video clips concerning the ongoing suffering in Palestine. <laughs>
0: Good morning, everyone. This is Visan from Gaza. It's the day 23 of continuous bombing. I'm at the
1: hospital, Shifa hospital. They they bombed the door of the hospital. They bombed. I've been there before two minutes. But more specifically, much of the information I see about Palestinians and Muslims in general is worrisome to me. In fact, one of the biggest inspirations behind this episode was a comment that Israel's defense minister made in early October. His name is Yoav Gallant and there are at least two different videos from separate occasions that show Gallant referring to Palestinians as, and I quote, human beings animals. Unquote. Listeners, let that sink in. Now he's the person making a lot of decisions in this situation. Thanks to translated captions, we know that in one clip he calls Hamas the ISIS of Gaza and says the goal is to quote, eliminate everything. In the other clip, he announces that Israel will be cutting off all food, electricity and water from Gaza. In both clips, he's calling the other side human animals. And by the way, Gallant isn't the only one. Toward the end of October, Dan Gilman, former Israeli ambassador to the UN, said the same thing. Puzzled by the constant uh, concern which the world and, uh, and also Britain, I must say, Mark, is showing for the Palestinian people and is actually showing for these horrible, inhuman animals who have done the worst. Now, these comments inspired this episode because it reminded me of just how scary our language can be. And to be honest, no good ever comes out of dehumanizing language, and I stand by that, whether or not Galland and Gilman were referring to Hamas alone or all Palestinians. When you call people animals, you make it acceptable to do inhumane things to them, because apparently they aren't real people anyways, quote-unquote. History has taught us again and again, During and after the slave trade, the enslaved were compared to apes. And so, they were considered less than human. And Hitler's Nazi Germany used to call Jewish people animals too. That language desensitized people to the brutality of the Holocaust, slavery and so many other horrifying events throughout history. And so, what does it mean if this rhetoric is popping up again? In light of this, I thought I would investigate the language we use in the media a bit more. The term human animals is not the only dangerous term floating around there. And my goal with this episode is to hunt down the other harmful words and phrases that news outlets, social media and politicians are using every single day. Sometimes it's obvious But other times, the danger of language is hidden under the surface. What words are people using to report on certain issues and why? How does this language affect our perceptions? And more importantly, what can we do about it? Well, this is what I'm hoping to tackle today. But before we begin, just a warning that multiple moments in this episode contain sensitive material including racism and brief mentions of sexual assault. I know these are difficult topics but it would be wrong of me to try to have this discussion without the very important examples included in this episode. So let's begin. When it comes to language, there are the words themselves and then there is the subtext. And this led me to research something called the dog whistle effect. Some of you may be familiar with the term because it's been around for a while. In politics, dog whistling describes the coded language people may use to imply something without explicitly stating it. And I know a lot of you may be thinking of different examples of this. Now, oftentimes, this comes in the form of selectively choosing some words over others. I'll give you an example. Back in June of 2021, a group of journalists released an article entitled An Open Letter on US Media Coverage of Palestine. Now, the article is a letter from journalists to other journalists asking that media be more careful with Warding. For example, many Palestinians have been forcibly removed from their homes, especially in a neighborhood in East Jerusalem. According to many sources, this displacement is illegal and yet, a New York Times article referred to these removals as, and I quote, Evictions. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I hear the word evictions, I personally think of tenants and landlords. This makes it seem like the Israeli government rightfully owns the land like a landlord would. Often, the blame falls on tenants who basically didn't follow the rules or pay rent, for example. If these articles had used the words displacement... Or forced removal, on the other hand, it would have implied that the Israeli government is an aggressor. That is, at its core, the dog whistle effect. With that small change in wording, there is bias. Your brain subconsciously makes associations with certain words and phrases. Honestly, it's not so hard to believe that these small differences in wording affect our perception If someone calls you pretty, that's a little different from someone calling you cute or beautiful. Now, sometimes it's hard to consciously realize the effects of small changes. But at a subconscious level, we do respond to these differences. And I do want to pause here and ask you guys to think of examples where words had an impact. And if those words were changed, what perception would ensue? Now, the scary thing is that dog whistling isn't new. Politicians and media outlets have been using this as a strategy for decades now, especially when it comes to the issue of race. Take a listen to this BBC News clip, which talks about how politicians are using coded language to manipulate people into making decisions they want them to make. And
0: there was one political strategist who took dog whistling to an art form.
1: Lee Atwater was the master of the dog whistle.
0: Atwater's work supporting Bush's 1988 presidential bid led to an advert so infamous that even today, it casts a shadow over the president's now, legacy. Now, Lee
1: Atwater, a strategist for the Republican Party during the 1970s and 80s, spoke about the power of dog whistling pretty explicitly. Nowadays, people often consider him the godfather of dog whistle politics. We have this clip of him from 1981, where he talks about the racial coding embedded in many of the Republican Party's words and phrases. I am going to play this clip because I believe it is important to reckon with a clear example of racist political policy. But I do want to include a trigger warning for racist slurs in the audio. You
0: start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, forced person states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And the byproduct of I them mean is blacks get hurt worse than white. Because obviously sitting around saying, uh, we want to cut taxes, we want to cut this, and we want is much more abstract than, than even the busing thing. Uh, and a hell of a lot more abstract than gonna do, you know. So
1: I, it's a you pretty it, scary a truth. Instead of saying words that are direct, dog whistling allows people to be subtle, or at least what they hope is subtle. In 1988, Atwater would go on to create an ad for George Bush that would become the prime example of dog whistle techniques. There's another trigger warning for a brief mention of sexual assault. Take a listen.
0: Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes.
1: On the surface, the infamous Willie Horton ad Claims to be about crime. Horton was a man first imprisoned in the 70s for murder and sentenced to life without parole. But in 1986, the prison released Horton temporarily as part of a weekend furlough program that was legal at the time in Massachusetts. After being on furlough for the 10th time, Horton escaped prison in Massachusetts and fled to Maryland. Here he allegedly assaulted a man and raped his wife. Now, on the surface, this ad may not sound racially targeted, merely factual, but the reality is much more complex. And here's why Horton's full name is William Horton, and apparently he never went by the nickname Willie. Horton said so himself in an interview, by the way. And yet, that is what Atwater and the Republican Party chose to call him. Why, you may ask? First, it's important to know that Horton is African-American. The ad also shows a mugshot of his face. Many articles further explain how the name Willie has a stereotypical African-American identification. Authors argue that Willie instead of William would register as racially black, especially for people in the deep south. Atwater is from the south. He would have known what would resonate with his fellow southerners, right? So William Horton became Willie Horton. Now we know that throughout U.S. history, American society has painted African Americans as dangerous aggressors. So changing Horton's name is a small change, but it resonated with white voters and pinpointed their fears of black men nevertheless. To be clear, Horton's crime was awful, no matter what he's called. But the fact is that watches ad flagged Horton's race to incite racial fears. Committing a crime is wrong, we all agree, but that crime should not be linked to the race or culture or identity of that person. Since AdWatcher's Willie Horton ad, there've been multiple other examples of dog whistling in politics and the media. And You don't have to go back to the 80s or 90s to see it. Let's take a walk down memory lane and share a few more examples. Now articles cite one of Donald Trump's campaign ads from 2016 as spreading anti-Semitic dog whistles. The ad links various well-known Jewish people to money and power. This idea that Jewish people control the world economy has been used to justify violence for centuries. For those
0: who control the levers of power in Washington, and for the global special interest, They partner with these people that don't have your good in mind. The political establishment that is trying to stop us is the same group responsible for our disastrous trade deals, massive illegal immigration, and economic and foreign policies that have bled our country dry.
1: Another example that I can share with you is during the peak of COVID, Anti-Asian sentiment spiked across the nation. People like Trump once again were calling COVID Kung Flu and the Chinese virus.
0: Kung Flu, yes. Some people call it the Chinese flu, the China flu, right? They call it the China as opposed to China. Do these
1: names actually address the issue of the pandemic or do they dangerously link death and illness? a single group of people. Here's another example for you. More often than not, when we hear the word terrorist in the news, it's paired with someone brown and Muslim. Time after time, Americans are flooded with news of so-called Muslim terrorists. On my other podcast, Invisible Hate, we've discussed numerous hate crimes targeting Muslims and South Asians because of a so-called threat we somehow pose. The reason I'm giving all these examples is that a lot of times, people start associating an entire group of people with violence and even terrorism. And just like any other stereotype, they are harmful and inaccurate. And it's costing people their lives. And unfortunately, a lot of us don't consciously recognize or can pinpoint the harmful impact of words. And how can I not mention the time when Trump talked about the quote-unquote civilized world? We
0: old alliances and form new ones and unite the civilized world against radical Islamic terrorism, which we will eradicate completely from the
1: face It suggests that there are civilized people who deserve respect and humanity, and then there are uncivilized people who don't have rights and deserve brutality. And those so-called uncivilized people are always guilty. So just like that, an entire religion becomes uncivilized villains who do nothing but terrorize others. Sure, Trump didn't say all Muslims are terrorists or deserve brutality, but he didn't have to actually say that, did he? And now we come to what's happening right now in this moment. It's no surprise to me that the issue of language has come up again In recent events regarding Palestine, the word terrorist is so often associated with Muslims at large. By calling Hamas terrorists, could politicians and media be using a dog whistle? Does it threaten to put all Palestinians under the umbrella of terrorists just because they are predominantly Muslim? And by the way, not all Palestinians are Muslims. There are Christian Palestinians as well. Now, as a Muslim woman, I often feel like I have to separate myself from the violence of others. Whenever I talk about Palestine, I say I don't support Hamas and I condemn Hamas. Now, even though it is true I don't support Hamas and I don't condone violence, My question to all of you is, why must I always defend myself in these moments? Why can't I express grief, fear, or pain without apologizing for it? In a way, I am reinforcing this idea that as Muslims, we have to prove our innocence time and again. We are held accountable for the actions of a few. Now, granted, I share my religion with Hamas, but I have nothing, nothing to do with them. So why does every person in America expect me to apologize a million times? And I want to mention the other half of this argument. So many non-white groups of people are automatically considered guilty of events and behaviors they are not responsible for. But on the flip side, when do White people feel that same pressure to defend their innocence or to be a spokesperson for their race. Do white people have to apologize for school shootings committed by young white men? Do white people have to condemn white hate groups in America every single day? Are they patted down more often at airports or followed around stores or brutalized by the police? It's now been over a month since Hamas' attack on October 7th and the quote-unquote human animals comments that followed. Since then, we've seen a barrage of attacks on Gaza. We've also seen an increase in Islamophobia and anti-Semitic language across the country. Far too often, prejudiced people use events like this to express their hatred. They aren't interested in learning about the issue. They just want to disguise their prejudice under politics. As a result, there's been a wave of tension among journalists, politicians and civilians alike who disagree over how to report on Palestine and Israel.
0: The New York Times Magazine's award-winning writer Jasmine Hughes was recently forced to resign after signing an open letter condemning Israel's siege on Gaza. TV News fired me after speaking up for Palestine. Me and the other organizer, Mariam, we received a lot of death threats from the Zionists. Mary
1: Hassan has been one of the few mainstream hosts in the Western world who has put proper scrutiny on Israel's actions in Gaza. Across college campuses, for example, many students are losing opportunities, getting suspended from school, or even getting arrested for expressing their opinion. The students being punished come from many different backgrounds. This includes Muslims and Palestinians, Arabs and even Jewish students. At the very least, to me, that proves that subtle differences in language matter. People are willing to risk their future if it means using the language they believe fits best. But here's my question to all of you. Which words are people using? And which words are people avoiding? Which words are people being punished for? Occupation? Resistance? Genocide? Let's talk about genocide. A
0: top UN official is resigning after 30 years on the job, saying the organization is failing to address what he calls a textbook case of genocide in Gaza.
1: Many sources, including the UN, are insisting that what is happening to the Palestinians is, in fact, a genocide. A UN article from October of this year insists that an immediate ceasefire is necessary to avoid a point of no return. UN Special Rapporteur Francesca Albanese writes, and I quote, Israel has already carried out mass ethnic cleansing of Palestinians under the fog of war, unquote. The
0: situation in Gaza is a catastrophe of unprecedented proportion. The United Nations has not been able to call for a ceasefire. And I'm wondering how many people have to, to die
1: Yet based on the language in some sources, you would think it's the other way around. Sometimes it just feels like certain news sources are denying that Palestinians are losing so many civilian lives. What they
0: say to me is I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed.
1: Now since November 24th, there's been a ceasefire. Both Israel and Hamas have been releasing each other's hostages. Which is good news the ceasefire agreement also allows much needed humanitarian aid to enter gaza at the time i am recording this which is november 29th it is unclear how much longer this truce may continue but we can only hope hope for a permanent ceasefire.
0: Israel has intensified its military operations in the south of the Gaza Strip. The IDF says it's hit more than 400 targets since a week-long truce between Israel and Hamas collapsed in the early hours of Friday morning. Well, this is the scene live right now outside
1: I know I shared a lot of information with you, a lot of difficult, inconvenient, uncomfortable information with you. Some of you may feel more uncomfortable than others. But look, that's what we do at Immigrantly. We talk about conversations that the mainstream media is unwilling to talk about. We make ourselves and others a little bit uncomfortable for a better, more humane, just society. In the end, here's what I'll say. People are quick to post on social media without knowing all the information. Or worse, the information they do know comes from the misleading language I was just discussing. Sometimes the misleading language is subtle, but that's why it's so important to read carefully and read from multiple different sources. We should also interrogate the words of others, even my words. I hope you don't just listen to me but dig into the research yourself as well. It's just as important to do introspection, to hold ourselves accountable for the words we are using, the narratives we are creating. What words are we using to discuss various issues and why do we pick those words? With that, I end today's conversation hoping that it will allow all of us to be more intentional about the language we use and the information we consume. This episode was produced by me, written by Michaela Strather. The editorial review was done by Shea Yu. Our theme music is by Simon Hutchinson. Our sound designer and editor for this particular episode is Paroma Chakravarti. Come back next time when I have another important conversation. Thank you, take care and be kind to yourselves and to others.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening. Just a reminder that this was a special episode of Invisible Hate featuring Sadia's other podcast called Immigrantly. You can find Immigrantly anywhere that you get your podcasts. I highly recommend that you listen. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another episode of Invisible Hate. See ya.